I want to sand off all of those sharp edges. I want to make the semi-technological person way more effective at their job. Like what I can do as an engineer can multiply their productivity immensely. And that is like the most satisfying thing ever. And that's how I like to use programming and, and creating tools and things like that. I'm Andrew Rutgers, co-host of Tangible Computing. I'm Gareth Thomas, co-host of Tangible Computing. The Tangible Computing podcast is about where computing meets the real world. From the fast and complex, like controlling an engine, to imaging a patient or scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This episode of Tangible Computing is brought to you by ChargeSim. ChargeSim is helping accelerate the transition to electric vehicles by helping electric vehicle fleets find the right charging infrastructure for their needs. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Today, we're interviewing Christopher Bailey, who is the host of another podcast called Real Python. Christopher, to get started, can you tell us a fun fact about yourself? I have a background as uh, an audio engineer, and I worked on, I don't know if you know who the artist Tyrese is. He's a singer, but he's mostly known as an actor now from the Fast and Furious movies. I recorded songs from his first album when I lived in Sacramento, and so I have a platinum record as a recording engineer from that experience, which was kind of cool. And then after that, I really got involved in teaching recording and digital audio and stuff like that. So a lot of people don't know that I, it was one big accredited thing. My father was very proud of me because I did not complete college. And this was like my ticket. He was a doctor and he had done many, many things in his life and always felt in this idea that you need these tickets to be able to get places in, in the world. And this was one of those for me. And I, I can definitely tell because we, we had a chat earlier and you were <laughs> you were coaching us about audio. So as new podcasters about how to do that. And we're on a video conference here. And so I can see that the room behind you has yeah. vastly more guitars and audio equipment than I do. <laughs> I, I could definitely see that part of your experience. Cool. So now you're hosting a Real Python podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about Real Python? So Real Python is known primarily as a website for people that want to learn more about Python. And I was in a journey uh, looking for a new job and I had learned SQL and I had back in the day learned other languages and this new position specifically said they were looking for somebody that knew Python and I had dabbled with it. I had been mostly dabbling with JavaScript and some other kind of languages at the time. And so I said, all right, I need to research this. So I am one of those people that dives very, very deeply into a subject and finds every resource possible. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, what, how can I learn Python? And so I started listening to Python podcasts and I started to look for Python books. And then I found this really cool website called Real Python. And I kind of stumbled in it sort of two ways. Dan Bader, who's the owner of the site and kind of the main Pythonista, as he likes to call himself, he had written a book called Python Tricks. And I had heard him on a podcast actually about 
that. And I said, oh, this guy sounds really interesting. And then I kind of followed him to the website. And basically the site is, it's really grown in so many ways since he sort of took it over. And there are basically two written tutorials written or uh, published on the site every week that go from everything from like just the fundamentals of Python, like, okay, what is a list and how do I create loops and so forth to machine learning and getting started and all these things. And what maybe is unique about the site in that sense is that you, the, there's multi stages of review. There's not just a single person writing this thing and maybe passing it off to one other to kind of look it over. There's reviews at every stage at outline at, at uh, technical review, an actual like written editor kind of checking that sort of stuff. And then on top of it, there's sort of a didactic review of like, okay, how, you know, could this be better as far as teaching this concept and, and so forth. And I, so I started, you know, checking out the site and then my relationship with the site is that I had done a bunch of video stuff while I was teaching at the school for recording engineers, I kind of started to get into that world. And Dan put out a request to his sort of list of, you know, uh, mailing list. Hey, we're thinking about doing video courses here at Real Python. And I was like, oh my God, this is like a perfect little fit for me because I, as a teacher, know that if I want to learn something new, one of the best ways that I can do that and make sure I feel solid in that is to teach it. And I had dabbled in doing video courses. I had done something for Skillshare and I had done my own podcast a long time ago. That was sort of a video podcast before that was really completely a thing, early days of YouTube. And so I had dabbled a lot in there and then I dabbled in making other things, but I just thought this is a perfect fit and turned out it was. And so I ended up making uh, video courses for, for, I mean, like 11 courses for real Python. And then about a year ago, then I kind of stumbled into doing the, the pod, podcast. I, I mentioned to Dan, why, why don't, why doesn't Real Python have a podcast? And he said, I don't have the, you know, I don't have the time to try to do that. Would you, and I've said, well, I, I think that's something I could do and I would fit in really well. And it's, oh, it's the seventies <laughs> of releases so far. So we're about a year and a half in and it's going great. I'm really enjoying nice. being and- a podcast host. It's fun. You mentioned about the quality and the effort that the real Python puts into the articles. When I started having a look at it, kind of researching, discussing with you a little bit, I was really impressed with the, like you say, the, the quality of it and the depth of it, that there's an awful lot of material out there for learning Python where it's, you know, the docs for a, a library or something. Some of them are okay. Most of them, you know, developers' documentation isn't necessarily the favorite thing on their list. And then there's, you know, the, the Stack Overflow articles or the, the Medium articles, but I found the, the real Python content was was really a different level. It was quite impressive to work with. I, I also really recognize your comments on on learning, you know, or being able to teach something is the the highest way to to learn it, that you you truly have to deeply understand it in order to pass it along effectively to to someone else. What, what do you find, or what is the challenge in communicating Python? I, I, I mean, what are, what are the, the things that you think about in making a good podcast? I think I could approach that question two ways. I could approach it from the video course side of things, because that was sort of a unique wrinkle 
in the sense that we, as video instructors, were brought on board to take existing articles that had been through that whole chain of editing. So now we need to make a video version of it. So what am I going to add to this? And there's been lots of approaches by the different instructors. I definitely thought what I think would work best as far as explaining these new concepts is to do walkthroughs, uh, REPL sessions, show the code, walk through the code, occasionally making mistakes and showing those mistakes sort of on purpose, which is something I'll talk about with the podcast too, in the way that I sometimes ask questions where it's not quite sure if like, does he know that question or does he not? And it, that's not important to me. Like I want to make sure that question gets asked because I know the audience is going to be thinking that. And so I think that's probably the biggest challenge is in interpreting this material is making sure that it is presented in a way that does answer those questions. And I'm not just simply reading through an article that's really well-written that I'm adding things to it. Very often I'm adding additional examples. I, I find the standard CS methodology of things like foo and bar being used as variable names and, or even maybe worse, you know, things like a function named the letter F um, or so forth can be super confusing when Python in general tries to get rid of all of those extra things. Like it doesn't have you know, as many curly braces and semicolons and, and things like that. It mainly uses white space and invention and, and so forth. So if you're then sort of reverting, in my opinion, to having things be more computer science-y and having just like X or S or, you know, foo or bar, I felt that was confusing. And I wanted to make sure that it was always either fun stuff or practical stuff. Like I'll, I, it would always have like very much verb like things. If it's a function, like, what does it do? You know, like that kind of thing, like this idea of that and, and noun type things for, for the names of, of objects. And so that, that was important to me to make sure that this came across and, and made sense. And then when it moved to the podcast, it's hard, right? Because it's a, it's a non-visual medium. And the very first episode I decided to do was to tap somebody who I was a friend with inside the organization, Ger Arna Yella. He's a, one of the first people, like I took his article and turned it into a video course. It was about decorators. And I always wanted to challenge myself. I always found those things in Python that I felt were sharp edges for me. I'd see those at symbols inside like flask and other things like that. And I'm like, what is that? That makes no sense what it's doing, you know, visually. And so the idea of like, you know, a function taking another function inside of it was like, you know, kind of mind blowing initially for somebody who had mainly just done other types of programming before that and hadn't seen that structure. So I was like, I need to learn that. So I, I did his course, um, but did his article as a course. And then I said, well, you know, we kind of palled around and we'd done some kind of question and answer stuff together. Would you like to come on the show? And maybe we could talk about decorators. How am I going to do this in a podcast medium, this thing that is truly very visual. And so it was a bit of a struggle and kind of figured out ways that we could talk about it and kind of make sense of it and then provided lots of resources. But so a little bit surely I've gotten a little better about 
how to do that. I definitely break acronyms down. Um, I feel like that's another stumbling block for, for everybody. Uh, if you're start talking above everybody's level so that, that those are some of the challenges I kind of faced. I, the other thing that I've always kind of wanted to make sure is just to just like, I think I said that already about the idea of like asking questions that may seem like a dumb question if you're an intermediate developer, but that beginner I think really needs it and, and is going to get turned off potentially maybe isn't into the, uh, had a conversation with Michael Kennedy on the show once had him come on board about talking about five years of doing Python podcasting. And we talked about the idea of sort of language immersion, the idea that why would you listen to a Python podcast if you're a beginner and they're talking at this level <laughs> and everything's very high flying. level. Yeah. Everything's flying by you. Uh, when could you feel comfortable? And so I, I agreed with that. I am that person, but I think there are a lot of people that aren't that that aren't gonna let it sort of sink in and, and get that weird kind of immersion type of thing where they have to be traveling around in the nation but i felt like that was a faster way for me to get moving in the direction and then like i mentioned already the idea of these sharp edges and finding those things and you know that's what i'm going to focus on i'm going to focus on this and like f strings is another one where i'm like that is a weird thing i think it's really cool but I don't understand it. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go learn that. And then I taught a course on it. And, you know, so that's kind of been one of the focuses I've had across all of, you know, <laughs> my time in Python so far. Yeah. I, I like your uh, description of the ethos around it, trying to make it really simple, really clear around the variable names, that kind of thing. And that's also one that I think is, is carried in the, the Python community and in the design of Python is that it is aimed to be a really understandable and readable language for myself, I work in a combination of, of React or JavaScript, basically JavaScript and uh, Python. And uh, the React code quickly turns into sort of mind-bending stuff, whereas the Python tends to be much more uh, readable and I run out of brackets a, a lot less. So, <laughs> Right. How, how many times do I need to close this thing here? <laughs> Without the IDE, I mean, some of that stuff would just be, be lost I and mean, impossible to figure out otherwise. Yeah. So our, our podcast is on tangible computing and, and applying computing to the practical world. But you mentioned you'd you'd worked with Python a little bit for some some physical projects. You mentioned a guitar pedal. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I I've been into electronics when when I went when I graduated from high school. I had a scholarship. And I'd done pretty well in my class. And so I, I could basically go to any of the state schools. And so I chose Arizona State University at the time. It's a long time ago, so I won't completely age myself out. But I took electrical engineering and I started to learn Fortran and C there. But what I was hoping I would do more of is like electronics and these kind of Gosh, I mean, it's sort of predating the web. So I guess that's, they do myself already. So a lot of those really interesting things that you can do with computers weren't around. And I was always into electronics. I was a good, you know, I am a guitarist. I've been playing guitar for forever. And I also got really into home recording because the idea of like, I don't need the other members of the band <laughs> kind of thing. And so I had the four track cassette type recorders and 
eventually there was an eight track cassette recorder thing. You could actually put, fit eight tracks of audio on a single cassette tape, which was pretty crazy. I, I've actually heard some people in the music industry that they figure there's actually a lot less bands now because with all of the technology and it's so easy to just record at home and to, 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 yeah. you know, to, to be a producer by yourself that you don't need to get together with three friends in order to have a band. Yeah. And so they're just, they're less sort common. Of, so it's sort of crazy that way. Yeah. I definitely use technology that way. Like I didn't have other musician friends at the time. And so I bought drum machines, bought all these other things. And so I got into pedals and I started to follow this guy, Craig Anderton, who is a DIY kind of guy and all these kind of projects. And so I taught myself how to solder anyway. So I got really into that kind of stuff and building electronics. And so when I got into Python and I saw this offshoot of MicroPython and now CircuitPython, I was like, oh, this is great. This is like a really cool combination of stuff. I dabbled with an Arduino board and I dabbled with some of the C programming in there. And I'll probably go back and do some more of that and mix it up. But I recently, uh, as I've been studying it and learning more about it, I decided to create a project where I make a foot pedal to control the playback of video players. So like if you're watching on YouTube and let's say it's a, you know, guitar, you know, video teaching you how to play something or you're going to transcribe something normally for YouTube, you would actually, the keys that sort of control the transport, which I didn't know at the time are J K and L on your keyboard and K X is like a play pause. Yes. You could do the same with your space bar, but these keys happen to all be next to each other on your keyboard. And those keys are actually kind of a standard. They came to me because I was doing video editing, which I mentioned And Final Cut Pro uses those same keys to actually uh, rewind, pause, and fast forward. And you would use it, um, they're actually just below the letters I and O, and that's how you'd set your in and out points. And I think that's where that whole mythology kind of came along is you'd be like, okay, I want to, uh, you know, that's something that I definitely think is, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of like in most multiplayer online games, if you press yeah. W, there's a pretty good chance you're going to walk forward. Right. Right. AS, ASDW, whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know how they pronounce it, but yeah. Anyway, so JKNL. And so I was like thinking to myself, I could make a pedal that could spit those out. So I got a circuit Python board, this little, um, it's called the Itsy Bitsy uh, M4 uses a little USB SAMD chip in it. And you can program it to kind of do whatever you want. But one of the simple things that I found it could do is you could attach switches to it. And then I had to basically just via Python import this thing called HID, which is the commands to basically be able to spit out keyboard commands. And so went through and programmed that. And then I started thinking, well, what if I want to switch to a different thing like a Vimeo, or maybe I wanted to act as a page turner and go back one page or forward a page. And I'm like, this thing could do all kinds of different stuff. So I started kind of planning my own tutorial about it. In this case, not having a written tutorial it would just be like me sort of just showing it off. And so, yeah, it, it's a really neat project. And then I bought a case from a company called guitar pedal parts. That is a nice big black box that would be designed for doing looping. You'd be able to start and stop your looper. And so these, these things can be far enough apart so I can hit them with my foot. And then 
I've heard of other people creating foot switches to control like Vim, I guess, their <laughs> key commands for like getting in and out of in insertion mode and things like that. So it's like, they called it a Vim clutch. I was like, oh, okay, you could do that. Or you could, you know, control Zoom. You want to mute yourself or mute your video. You can just hit the button. So all kinds of fun things you could do or just even transcribing something, you know, like if you have to write down the stuff inside of it, having like that kind of court reporter kind of controls for a tape. Well, it used to be a tape machine. So you mentioned the word MicroPython and CircuitPython. Sure. Is that a bit of a revelation? Can you maybe dive a little bit deeper of what that actually is? So I got to interview Scott Shawcroft recently, and he works for Adafruit. Adafruit is a company that sells lots of these microcontrollers and the electronics and sensors and things that can attach to them. And he was brought on board to help them port this thing called MicroPython, which was developed by another individual. And I'm going to blank on his name, sorry. But he had developed MicroPython to work on these other controllers as sort of a Kickstarter campaign. He got backing to basically make it so that people could program using Python instead of C or other variants of C to program these little microcontrollers. They could actually do something that's a little friendlier and easier to kind of get into. And it, uh, Adafruit, the company came out with this thing called the circuit playground express, which is a really nice little board to kind of play around with and kind of get in and use. In fact, doesn't really require soldering to do most projects with it. You can just kind of attach with alligator clips, but the really neat thing about this language that they've sort of modified for MicroPython to be this thing called circuit Python is it makes these microcontroller boards, these small circuit boards that have, you know, jumpers or pins, or in this case, alligator clip contacts and so forth. They have a USB port. So you plug in like a micro USB cable, it has to be a data one, not just a charging one. And as you plug it into your computer, it appears like a thumb drive. And on it, it'll actually be called, it'll actually say like circuit pi is the name of the drive. And then there's a code code.py file. That is the Python program that you can write with it. So you could take that into say a text editor and start writing, you know, your Python code. And in this case, circuit Python is a subset of Python. I forget exactly how much smaller it is, but I, I think we were talking about it and Python itself is uh, maybe around 50 megabytes this thing is less than one megabyte. It's like all the code all together is I think 600 kilobytes. It's such a change from, you know, when I was first working with microcontrollers and they have 64K of memory right. and it's eight right. bits or something like this. And the idea of having a one megabyte interpreter for your interpreted <laughs> language just put on a microcontroller to, to actuate a few switches, I mean, it would, it would have been absolutely insane. Like you have to do this in C or assembly and you have to, yeah. you have to know about bit registers, but technology has advanced and, and now this is possible. It's, it's amazing. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah, it's very cool. The idea that you can have these, have a language like Python and the goal, and I asked him this question, which was like, I, I've heard you mention that you always want it to feel like Python. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? Like, and so the, these core elements need to be there. And there's actually a really big conversation happening in the world of Python as we move from 
3.9 that we're in right now to 3.10 that's going to come out and then 3.11, you know, every year it's now become a yearly cyclical thing is this question of like, how could we make Python faster, but also how, what is the core of Python? And if we were going to make it smaller, make it more efficient, make it faster, what could stay, what could go, what, what, what needs to be there? And, and anything that's been around for as long as Python has definitely has, you know, interesting cruft inside of it. And so there's been the, I did an interview with uh, Joanna Jamoski, who was at the Python language summit. And she, she got to listen in and, and hear all these conversations about these sort of plans. And it was very interesting to kind of dissect it because she wrote all these blog posts kind of you know, describing it. And I was able to go into more details and kind of poke at some of these things a little bit more. And Brett Cannon, Brett Cannon gave, gave a talk about, you know, what is the core of Python? And then Scott Shawcroft, the guy who I interviewed, basically did a presentation, sort of a light, lightning talk about you know, what is circuit Python and what it's made of and that kind of difference. And it's, it's been really interesting, just kind of like learning more of the background on it, but it's really the core things that you learn in Python, you can do in circuit Python, which is great. I mean, they just recently added the F string thing that I was talking about earlier, which is really cool. And as far as kids getting into learning to do stuff with electronics, this language is going to be drastically more approachable than what you and I kind of have dabbled with C and, you know, some of these other earlier versions of uh, microcontrollers there, you know, the language is a little more baffling to kind of look at. It's definitely maybe more efficient as far as what it can do, but this is a really kind of neat way to kind of get people into it. And I just actually had Nina on from Microsoft and we were talking about a project that some of interns that were at Microsoft had created for VS Code, which was a, a virtual version of the Circuit Playground Express, which I think is really cool. So we recently talked about that and the idea that, you know, people may want to play around with electronics, but it still is an expense, especially across the world. Yeah. And so to have this sort of virtual version of it, something you could play with, and then maybe you could play with at home, maybe you have a computer and, uh, and then maybe at school, then you could then apply your code there. I don't know. It'll be interesting to kind of see where it all develops, but there's, there's definitely this, I don't know, resurgence of electronics and programmable electronics, which I think is just killer. You know, I, I watched all the stuff kind of happening with, you know, ro robot robots and, you know, programming them. And it's not something I've done yet, but I think that might be somewhere another area I might get into after I kind of play around with more pedals and controlling musical things and stuff like that. You talked a little bit about the direction that Python is going. What do you think are some of the most interesting developments in the, the new versions? So another one of those sharp edges that, that I felt, and I've mentioned this probably on the show a couple of times, the idea of type checking, which was, a, again, as a person who's not looking at the base core elements of Python, as you start to look at other people's code, as you start to read open source projects, which is an interesting habit. It wasn't always one of my habits, but I've kind of dabbled into it more and more as I've gone along. And I hear that suggestion, especially for intermediate people. But you look at that code and suddenly you see a lot of things that you won't usually see in a, in a normal like set of instructional tutorials. And the reason is this sort of interoperability, this idea of working with things on the web where 
it really is useful if you've declared things to be a specific type. The whole uh, dynamicness of Python is is a core, I don't know, belief, you know, as far as the development of Python. And, and it's really great it, it's for a, learners. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really, it's excellent for the, the flexibility of it. And yeah. as you say, the, the sort of dynamicism, but then the flip side is working on larger projects, any number of errors, which only show up at runtime is when you put a none value into something that should have been an integer. And right. if the code inside the function didn't think about it being none instead of an integer, <laughs> Yeah. then it goes nuts. And so having it formally typed of this must be an integer or this may be an integer or none, but it will not be a string or right. uh, you know, whatever is needed can reduce the bugs quite a bit. Yeah. And you know, that's why so many languages are written that way and that sort of functionality and the popularity of languages like Rust right now and the sort of growth there and that kind of unique stability, which is crucial for things that are going to be, if you will, infrastructure <laughs> that you need to make sure are always kind of working and behaving in certain ways and, or things that you're doing interoperability, you're going back and forth between JavaScript and Python in some of your projects. And so in that case, it would be good that they both agree on what these things are going to be going back and forth. And so type checking was really foreign initially to me, at least how it was shown. And I was like, what are these weird little things that are sort of defined outside that don't seem to have any real functionality as far as what mm -hmm. the code's doing? So anyway, that, that part was kind of interesting. And there's a struggle, if you will, of like, how do we keep adding some of that stuff, but still keep Python dynamic? And then there's the struggle with the open source organizations and projects and things that are out there that are at the same time you know, they're on the move too, right? And they're trying to come up with solutions that that will fit. And there was a big kind of collision last year, like, or actually this year in the spring where this project Pydantic and Fast API and some of the changes that were gonna come in Python 3.10. And they were kind of different on exactly how they were gonna do type checking. And some people were sort of throwing up their hands and then it became like this weird kind of like, you know, I joked on the podcast that it becomes a thing on Twitter where it's like, fight, 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 you know, like everybody wants to get these people to fight with each other, which I think is just ridiculous. None of those parties really want that, but they weren't sure how to open the doors and create the conversation. And, and, and that's happened and they've actually worked it all out. Cooler heads have completely prevailed and they have a plan. So this like pep had been introduced about how it was going to be done. And these people were like kind of upset and they figured it out and worked out and the stricter way of doing this typing is not going to happen until later and gives time for again, direction and, and planning and so forth. And then the other big one, so the, the communication is getting better all the time, which I think is really great between these different sides and, and this community feeling of not having to feel like, Oh, nobody cares what I think and so forth and so on. I'm just going to, you know, keep trying to do my thing here or feeling you know, left out or whatever. I don't, I'm seeing less and less of that. I'm feeling more and more of this uh, communal thing within Python. And I don't know, I, I find it really exciting. You know, I, I, I enjoy even my small part in the Python community and talking to these people and learning more of you know, their stories and what they're doing and, you know, promoting what they're doing. And, and that's 
been really, really fun for me. And, you know, I want to keep promoting it. But the other big one that I see is these changes towards speed. And there was a big change in the way that Python, basically the interpreter that's inside of it. And they're, they've been switching it over. The creator of Python, uh, Guido van Rossum, proposed this new type of interpreter for Python and actually did get switched over to that in Python 3.9. And what I think that's allowing to happen in 3.10 and 3.11 is these sort of chances to do speed bumps, to be able to take multiple statements at a time and, and look at them. The way it was interpreted before was like single, you know, one item at a time, which was kind of the requirement at the time for when he developed the language. And so, and then there's a bunch of other people, again, looking at things like I mentioned of, of like, you know, reducing the the overall, you know, scope of the built-in language that they could look at ways to, to make Python a little bit smaller and potentially more performant on that. And then the other one is maybe more Python on the web. And I've talked to a couple different people over the last year about this thing called um, WebAssembly or WASM as they like to pronounce it. <laughs> and how do we get maybe Python doing that and, and working inside that element and, and working directly creating, instead of having to connect to all these other frameworks, maybe have Python be more running on the web. But in order to do that again, we need to maybe get it smaller and things like that. So, but there's a lot of interesting things happening. Have you been surprised of where Python is actually being used and do any examples stand out in the sense of, you know, you, you kind of people start Python maybe on a website or maybe you, as you were talking about circuit Python more closer to embedded systems. Have there any been any use cases or surprises where you said, wow, I never thought that Python as a language would actually appear in application A, B, or C? Something that David, who's been sort of, I, I keep calling him a guest, but he's kind of becoming almost my co-host because we, we kind of alternate episodes. The two of us do these episodes that are a little more based around finding resources for people every two weeks. And so we get this kind of survey based upon a little bit of his research using this thing called PyCoders. He, he compiles the PyCoders articles for every week. And then every two weeks, we kind of go through them. And so one thing we've noticed is this areas like animation being using it. We recently talked about Blender, which is a 3D modeling tool. And there are elements inside of it where you can automate things inside there using Python. And one of the things I'm very much into is video games and video games like film or music have definitely advanced in interesting ways. And I would almost argue that video games may be one of the more, most complex <laughs> creative endeavors that's out there. You have everything from, you know, people writing the story to, you know, doing voiceover stuff to actual gameplay and those mechanics, but then everything can be in this crazy 3d world. Well, every one of those assets, every one of those objects has to be modeled in 3d and potentially has to be uh, destructible. And how can we create those things? And so a tool that where Python could be used is to 
help you create those structures without having to like sit there with a pen and draw them out or, you know, some other kind of mathematical way of creating these objects, I think is really awesome. I've seen Python being used in different music applications besides the interesting kind of controller ideas that I've had. I've seen them used as like ways to kind of script things, control things inside of there. Go ahead. Video games recently, that some of the scripts end up being 1800 pages that all of the different, one is just the number of hours you spend playing a video game <laughs> right. can be very, very long depending on the game. And then two, just there's all of these different possibilities. Did you kill the aliens or did you save them? And it just explodes into this gigantic script. And all of that, you need to, there needs to be a language to think about that and to have that flow and to, to manage that inside the game. Yeah, I had a, a guy who has been dabbling with, you know, Pygame and some of these other libraries that are you know pure purely python kind of based i mean they have other elements to talk at like the graphics layer and sound layer and, and so forth but they kind of combine them Ar arcades another one pi game and arcade are the two kind of big ones that are out there and he wanted to do 3d and he wanted to do more advanced things and kind of go beyond there and so we were talking about this other language it's called godot and what i thought was fascinating about it is Godot as the engine allowed for the lower level, more intense things like the frame rate and the 3D world and paying attention to all the different objects and all that sort of stuff to be done inside of this thing we call an engine then that you, you instruct and you do program it, but it's much more from like a dashboard and you're kind of setting up all these things. But what it also allows for is the logic and the things that you're kind of mentioning, Andrew, the idea of like going from one story to another and, and kind of this tree of where does this end up? And that can be all done in a language that really looks like Python, which is, and they kind of did that on purpose as they wanted it to be friendly in that way. It has some of its own archetype, archetypes inside of it for how that works, but I asked him if that was appealing to him and he really wanted the engine part. He, he didn't want to try to create all that from scratch anymore. Cause it was, that was ending up being like just bug hunting at all times. And it was just very, very frustrating and just full, creating full 3D. walls and like, you know, things traveling through them and all the rules and stuff there. And so, yeah, so it was, it was really kind of interesting. Full on 3D graphics engines, enormous project. And I mean, you, you need to have quite a deep understanding of kind of matrix math and all of these kind of things <laughs> yeah, to do totally. all of that. And then most of it is, it's all done in libraries also, because then you can push that stuff to a GPU very easily. So at any kind of high level game development, you try to avoid dealing with that as much as possible. Yeah. When I was teaching at the school for recording engineers, we started to teach a sound engine. It's called wise. It's like two W's. And at the time it just had like a really goofy doom game in it. And the idea was for the students to create the sound effects and create the other sort of stuff that's inside of it. And like I was playing a game recently that that is from like the PS2 era and I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh my gosh, like that sound engine is so simple. You know, like footsteps are always the exact same. My wife said, are you typing? Because <laughs> it sounded like the exact same like sound going, going again. And inside this wise engine, you could not only tie it to a 3D engine, 
so that it could actually, based on the architecture of the room and the surfaces that are there, like what kind of reverb should this have? And what sort of reflections should they hear? And then as you do footsteps, okay, I have a collection of 10 recordings of footsteps that I have now randomized, like picking them and then also randomize their pitch and their volume subtly, you know, things like that. And so that makes it so it, it sounds like a lot more realistic in the sense that it's confusing the, the listener like from being able to ever notice that it's uh, just a trick that's happening behind there in programming. Different soundtracks for the walking on metal or walking on grass or concrete or whatever. And uh, yeah, an enormous sound library that needs to get built up and yeah, and controlled and you know, randomized and everything else in order to make it uh, seem natural. Yeah, it's just amazing. And then I've talked to people, you know, in the machine learning, I've talked to people about you know, security and I've talked about web stuff. And so the whole area, the gamut of, of Python is, is pretty wide, like as far as what you can do with it. And I think that's been one of the biggest sort of revelations is, you know, as a language, you could kind of just about do anything with it. You know, that's a bit of a joke that's out there about Python. It's the second best language for doing anything. And I'm like, well, okay. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that at that level, but it, it definitely is, as I've talked to like people from Google about infrastructure type of tools and building things and the idea that I don't have to completely compile this whole thing to try something out. I can you know, stand something up very quickly. I can modify things really quickly and try things out. It, it is very suited for that. Yeah. The iteration. It allows a really fast iteration rate, which is how you make better code. Is you try it, you run it, you see if it does what you really want, and you fix it if it doesn't. The yeah. faster you can get that loop going. That's what, I mean the whole idea of agile on a project level <laughs> and just trying yeah. to trying to get that iteration faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you have a unique perspective on kind of the career paths and, and learning Python that as one of the premier educators of the Python language, I, th I think that's a fair statement. How do you get into learning? Now, I, I think all three of us on the call here, we all have electrical engineering undergraduate background and then moved away from doing hardware work to now focusing heavily on software. But then there's also an awful lot of people who are more self-taught and partly through tools like real Python or other sources to learn. Do you, do you see a, a tension between people with a kind of formal education doing computer science versus the more self-taught? Do you see pros and cons to those types of educational background in terms of getting into programming? Well, I have to uh, kind of change that up a little bit because I didn't graduate. I got frustrated in college, partly by the things that I could do with computers at the time and was much more interested in music at the time and what I could do with it, that I dropped out of school. I did get in a band, was on a label, toured, put out albums. So I, I learned a lot of things there. And along the way, I had lots of different jobs and lots of different industries. I worked from Radio Shack to a computer vendor, this place called Fast Micro, which isn't around anymore. I bounced around a lot in these different jobs, partly because I, I had this one problem. I had to keep saying to everybody, I'm going to go on tour. 
<laughs> they're like, oh yeah, we were thinking about having you be a manager of this, but never mind. And so I, I kind of ended up bouncing around in that sense. Eventually I landed at a music store and I started doing consulting and I would go to people's homes and teach them how to use their stuff. And that kind of is how I got into teaching. And that's how I got recruited by this place called the Conservative Recording Arts and Sciences. And at all times, I had been interested in electronics. I'd been interested in dabbling and teaching myself and so forth. And like I said, I'm a, a consummate researcher and I immerse myself in anything that I'm going to learn. So I worked at the school for a long time. And again, no better way to teach, you know, to learn something than to teach it. I already knew a ton about, you know, these digital audio workstations and recording and had my own background, which I mentioned before from that. Moved to Hawaii with my wife and I worked for Apple for a little while. I was a trainer for them teaching and, and doing stuff inside of not only retail stores, but teaching staff inside there about their equipment. And so like I used to, I learned how to tear apart iPhones and all that sort of stuff. So always, always been learning and just constantly as I went and Apple allowed me time to do learning also. And they would throw things out there sometimes. And I was like, oh, great. They'll pay for me to get certified on Final Cut. I already know it, but I probably could study a little bit more and get this certification piece of paper. And at the same time, learn their motion graphics software. And so I learned that. I would just learn everything. And it baffled the people around me. Like, why are you doing this? I'm like, I love it. <laughs> you know, like I really enjoy learning how to do these things. And then I was, you know, one of these trainers that pretty much they could ask me anything about stuff they sold. And at the same time, Apple had kind of started to push their, their uh, tool called FileMaker and which is a database thing, but you could actually kind of create apps that would run on a phone or a tablet. I was there at Apple at the time when they introduced the iPad, which was really cool. I actually went to Cupertino and saw Steve Jobs talk about it, which was really, really kind of interesting thing at the time. And I, I was really amazed by that. And that got me super interested in programming again, not only this idea of what FileMaker could do, but iOS. So I started kind of learning a little bit about iOS programming and C got back into the C world again and started learning objective C. And then my wife suddenly said, Hey, do you want to work at this bank? And so we need somebody that can do SQL. I don't know SQL. That's okay. I don't know it either, but I program better than this guy they've hired to do it. And I know that you could do it way better than him. So I ended up teaching myself SQL and I, you know, bought a bunch of books. I used the lynda.com at the time type of thing to like learn more about programming there. And so I just always been about immersion, always been about diving in deeper. And, and since that's about 10 years ago, it went from SQL to various other sort of database programs and those kinds of things into Python and what I'm doing now. And I think the, the web is amazing in the sense that there's so many resources out there that you, you can immerse yourself. I think podcasts are really great for that too. I think it's been a struggle sometimes to get to the interview point if I'm looking for a job, if they haven't 
thrown my resume in the circular file because he doesn't have a degree. How do I explain to that person that I'm probably more passionate about learning new things than I would say the majority of the people that work at your company right now? Like go ask them, what have they learned lately? <laughs> or what are they interested in learning? Like those are the questions that, that excite me and that I, I literally have a question on the podcast every week. Like, you know, what are you excited about now? And cause that's to me, you know, why are you doing this? You know, if you're not, if that isn't what's turning you on to do more with it and learn more about it and you know, do something else with it. And Python has been this great spot for me to land in where it is so diverse, like, oh, wow, I'm interested in data science. I want to do more with data visualizations, which is something I did a whole bunch of on there. And in between there, while I was working at another job, they said they used R and I'm like, cool, let me check it out. So I taught myself the basics of R and was able to, you know, run with that in a certain way. And I can kind of compare and contrast it in certain ways and these certain libraries and things that I, I think I've mentioned before. Like I love this, this whole thing of the tidy verse that Hadley Wickham's created. And I think that those are really powerful tools. And so I've tried to figure out exactly, you know, how those come across and see that push and pull between pandas and some of the libraries there on that side in the R language. I think that being self-taught shouldn't be a barrier for a job. I feel that a lot of people that have degrees have learned things in other languages and other techniques that aren't even being used anymore because things have moved so fast that the real test is what are you learning now? What are the resources? Like I've seen some interview questions that were like that, where like, what are, what are resources that you're using to learn more about this? Like what, where do you read about this and, and so forth? And I think those are kind of a little better gauges of like, you know, is this person? The yeah. The employee you probably want is the one who is committed to learning and able to teach themselves and able to pick up the new languages and frameworks and so forth that are coming along, because of course they're all going to change over time. Right. And you know, whatever you learned 10 years ago, isn't going to be relevant anymore. So the self-taught provides that basis, the, the difficulty from the recruiter side on the other side of the table of, I've got 10 resumes in front of me and I want to... I, I want to go for lunch, so let's get rid of half of them somehow. And yeah. a, a you know, no degree is a very fast way to thin Absolutely. the pile. Yeah. And I think that's part of it. Most of the jobs I've gotten in this world have all been, almost all been referral one way or another, you know, and that made sense for me in the music world because I don't know of anybody, you know, like, yes, you can go to school. And I taught at a school for recording engineers, but even those people, they weren't offered jobs right away. We would get them into internships and, and so forth. But all the other jobs that I've gotten from that have all been referral and, and so forth. And so I, I kind of tried to keep building those kinds of things. And then as far as like, do you want to add somebody to your team? The one thing that I would also look for is, are they interested in communicating with the other staff members and, you know, teaching them how to do stuff. And, and that kind of like collaborative thing is some of the stuff where I see it really break down very often in organizations. Like this person thought they could just come in and 
solo this whole thing you know and it's like they they may have a brilliant implementation of bubble sort but really what what we needed was someone who could explain it uh effectively to someone else or somebody that knew that there's a nice sort function built in anyway how can i help lift the rest of my team up too you know like i've always been that educator within these organizations where i feel like i want to make sure that i'm sharing that sort of stuff and and it's surprising to me you know to meet other people that and they're not that interested in that. It's like they're, they're, they're basically just passing the time to get through things. And to me, that's fine too. But I feel like I want to make sure that I'm lifting people up and you know, sharing and, and trying to make people have as much, you know, live to their potential in this sort of thing. And the only way to do that is to stay on top of what's happening. I feel like there's like always newer, better and, you know, better resources for, for continuing to, to grow in your development. And, you know, so that's why this whole thing has been such a great fit for me. <laughs> Just to go back a bit about this recruiting. So you're saying that evaluating someone is not always so easy. And I, I believe there's a new trend for recruiters to use like GitHub repositories as a CV as opposed to only LinkedIn. But that is maybe great for purely technical, but I think you're touching on a really important point that inside organizations or communities, there's a balance between the very technical people who can master certain things. And then there's that person who can translate or identify or explain in different terms that help enormously organizations. Do you kind of have a name for such a role? How would you describe that person? I don't know. I've been thinking about it, but I don't know if I've tried to, you know, codify it in a certain way and say specifically it's this. If you were to look at my GitHub repository, it would be kind of embarrassing because I don't, I haven't worked in organizations up to this point where we shared code in those ways. I was working inside banks. And so like any code I created for them was not to be shared in any way outside of here and so forth. I had to build tools that would only be hosted on local machines inside of a local network. And it was, you know, that was a struggle in certain ways. You know, worked on a series of like three different banks. And then I worked for a law firm, so the same kind of thing. And then the stuff I'm doing for Real Python isn't really shared in that way. You know, it's it's done through like a video and and, and training and and so forth. And so it feels like kind of like this dark secret that hey man, he doesn't have much of a GitHub status. I don't have the the cool subway tile pattern happening. I met a, a group of people from a, a company that that creates metrics based on that stuff. And that scares me a little bit. Like the idea that, that we're going to measure productivity just by these statistics. Okay. But the person could hit commit 10 times a day. Are they just changing things back and forth? I think it's through communication and, and other things. And so I, I worry about it. People will quickly learn how to game that. Yeah. Anything could be gamed. Yeah. Everything could be gamed and you're going to measure it. They're going to game it. You know, it's like any kind of. Especially with a bunch of computer scientists. (laughs) And automation tools. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it may be hard to figure out how to ask people the questions to find that. If you're looking for someone, I would ask like, tell me, I know people hate probably doing this whole like story kind of thing, but tell me about a time where you 
taught something else to another team member, you know, or help them through another problem, like trying to figure out the collaborative kind of stuff, I think would be kind of crucial in some of that, as opposed to purely whiteboarding everything. Yes, you need to understand these things exist and, and so forth. And this bare minimum of coding. And, and I've heard other interviews where you can prove pretty quickly that you understand the concepts of programming, but suddenly this whole company might shift their stack and use different stuff. And so your ability to pivot and, and, and learn, and that's a big part of my personality too, which is something that is unique about me that I, I have this tendency in that I want to create people not necessarily as a way of like going off my work, though I have been a musician and, you know, I have been a filmmaker and I've done all these kinds of things and, and so forth. But most of that wasn't necessarily like, I'm, I'm not interested in becoming a, a star, you know, like I'm way more interested in helping you solve your problems in this kind of customer service kind of thing. And that's always been really what's important to me. Like I like to solve problems. I had, you know, as a, consultant, that was the most satisfying thing here. This person bought thousands of dollars worth of equipment and software, and they just want to make music, man. And they just, and th this thing is in their way. And so my ability to take them from frustration to elation of like actually creating music right now is, is huge. And it's the same thing for a small business or what have you, like the taking someone from we have this problem. We're doing everything on paper out in the field and it's getting all filthy and dirty. And, and then we bring it home and now our scanner is getting all filthy and dirty because we're you know, scanning all these paperwork in. And my ability to create a, an application for them that runs on the iPad, that they can go out in the field and gather all this data and so forth. And then that quick iteration where I'm sitting there with a the person who's going to be out in the field and saying, okay, well, what's frustrating about this? Like, what do you like about it? You know, and so forth. And having those little short, little inter, you know, interviews. And I think a lot of programmers, that's hard. Like they, they're not interested in that. I mean, we could call it introvert, extrovert, whatever you want, but that's definitely something that I enjoy. Like I, I want to sand off all of those sharp edges. You know, I want to make the, the, the semi-technological person way more effective at their job. Like what I can do as an engineer can multiply their productivity immensely. And that is like the most satisfying thing ever. And, you know, that's how I like to use programming and, and creating tools and things like that. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a spectrum of, on the one hand, business risk of a software tool not doing what the user really wants it to do, and therefore it's useless. And they may not tell you. No, exactly. And and figuring that out is very difficult. At the other end, there's the kind of technical risk of how do we actually build it. And in the early days of computing, it was very much heavily on the technical risk, because if you're calculating interest in a bank account, it's pretty well understood how that's being done. And if you can just do it really, really fast, yeah. that's a massive advantage. And so waterfall development works, but now it's so easy to do the programming comparatively that the dominant risk is the business risk. And so there it's around, it's not necessarily being the fastest coder or the most brilliant coder, but the one who gets the user input and builds the thing the user really wants right. is the one that's going to be most valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and that's that weird intersection that I'm way more interested in than 
a lot of the other areas of what you could do with it. My co-host David, he's really, really into mathematics and that's what he's passionate about and what he really, he's thinking of going back to school and finally getting his PhD because he got interrupted in that whole process. And, and so that's in, for me, those higher levels of math are harder to get as excited about without knowing, well, how are we going to apply this? Like, where can I use this and so forth? So that's kind of why I like, again, the concept of your show, like the idea of like, okay, what, how are people using this stuff and what, you know, you know what makes it like the tangible part of it, which is, is exciting to me because I think that that's where, I don't know. I, I'm not excited about cryptocurrencies or, 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 uh, NFTs or all these kinds of things. I, I, I see the things that are happening with them, but like, to me, I don't know where the tangible good is there <laughs> for society and for, for human beings. And there are so many like really big problems that are happening right now that I could see lots of, of this technology being, you know, pivoted and used for that. And that, that I think is way more interesting. Um, and again, just let's solve problems. <laughs> so sure yeah so what are you going to be learning next oh my gosh um <laughs> i so i've been teaching myself circuit python and and doing more projects with that and if i was to go outside of python i was talking to, to Nina about this recently too. And we talked the, she said she was messing around with woodworking and I was like, yeah, I'm pretty passionate about that too. Right now. Like that's something that I want to learn more about. You guys can see it behind me, but there's like some wood shelves and stuff that I've built for my computer stands back there. And I, you know, I started kind of dabbling in that world and, and I'm really in this sort of physical world thing. I'm almost to the point of buying a 3d printer. <laughs> I keep, I try to ask advice of people like what I should get and so forth, but I, I like building things and creating things. And right now that's probably the closest I've come to the idea of like creating for myself, you know, and, and it could be the guitar pedals or it could be, you know, these other projects I was talking about, but the woodworking has been pretty satisfying. Like I've built little pieces of furniture, small things like that. And so I bought a router and I bought a little table for that. So I'm still like learning how to put all that together. And so there's just, I think it's a vast area to learn. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still just sort of dabbling on it and looking for good resources. I haven't done full immersion yet. I found a couple of magazines. There's something incredibly satisfying about building something, you know, woodworking, and then you can point to it at the end of the day and say, yeah, I made that and it's physically there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have these, uh, it's like a C stand sort of end table that I can kind of slide it under the couch. It looks kind of nice. So that's been fun. I haven't signed up for courses or anything, but that might be in the next level. So we'll see. So Chris, where can people find your podcast and how can they reach out to you? If people want to check out the Real Python podcast, you can just go to realpython.com slash podcast and check out a lot of the stuff that's on there. I'm constantly sharing projects on there, things to do, 
I, I do my best to research the things that I'm sharing and, and try them out and give my opinion on them. And I keep trying to find more guests. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I, I have a weird name. It's Digi Glean, D-I-G-I-G-L-E-A-N. You can follow me on there. You can follow the Good. podcast, check it out. This is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers or how to make this podcast better. Send an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.